This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. The most significant elections ahead of 2024 are being held Tuesday, November 7th. Voters across the country and candidates alike are focused on key races in order to better prepare for the important year ahead. And these elections will test the power of popular governors like Youngkin and DeWine, uh, the influence of hot button issues on the ballot like abortion and the potential direction of crucial swing states in the 2024 lead up. So following Tuesday's elections, the third Republican presidential primary debate will feature a smaller stage and a narrowing field of candidates who have qualified. So what will the candidates glean from these significant state races that are happening Tuesday, the day before? And what can we expect from the presidential candidates' third debate stage performance? Well, I am pleased because joining me today with a look at both the small details, the big picture as well as my friend, Republican strategist and co-founder of South and Hill Strategies, Colin Reed. Colin, welcome back to Perino on Politics. You kicked us off in August. You've been here before, and now we have you again. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Dana. Third time, I feel like I deserve a T-shirt at this point. Oh, I better get on that. I better get on that. At least we have a logo and everything, so maybe maybe we shall. This podcast continues to do well. Um, before we jump into Tuesday's election, I want to talk about what I think was the biggest political news over the weekend, which is the confirmation that the polls showing Biden losing to Trump are not outliers. This is now static. And the New York Times Siena poll that came out yesterday was described by the Wall Street Journal as a five alarm fire for Biden. Can you describe to people what you thought about the poll and what it means for him that it, he's right now Biden is losing to Trump in five of the six swing states? Yeah, and this was a New York Times Siena poll, so it's not as though it came from a outlet able to be dismissed as hostile or unfriendly to the administration. And oof, what what a weekend! And you know, I think Josh Kroshauer, he was on your show on the podcast last week, and mm -hmm. he mentioned that the world seems a bit asunder right now. Everything seems topsy turvy, and I think you can make that case even before the events of October the seventh and what's happening overseas, but certainly since then. And like Josh said. The, the person in charge is the one who bear, pays the price for how people are feeling. And right now, it's just very unsettled, very uncertain, very unstable. And when you have, I think, 71 percent of people in that poll think Joe Biden's too old to be president, uh, it's 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 not looking good. And that was before his old boss, Barack Obama, essentially came in and uh, waded into the middle of this dispute over uh, with Israel and Hamas and essentially made life incredibly more difficult for his old governing partner. So uh, it's uh, it's it's tough times right now for the White House. No doubt about it. So Biden, there's nothing he can do about his age. His age is his age. And that's not going to change. President Trump in years is not much that much younger, but he reads a lot younger and everybody ages at a different rate. Apparently, you know, the campaign is trying to say, 
and even some people that support Joe Biden, maybe paid or unpaid, will say, well, look, Obama at this stage had similar poll numbers and that Reagan at this stage had similar poll numbers and they go on to win re-election handily. Is that a decent comparison? Is that a good point that they make? Look, there's still less than a year to go. So the point on timing is theoretically true. But Barack Obama at this point in time in 2011 set aside the fact that he just won a transformational election three years earlier. He was a guy in his early 50s, if that, uh, certainly in a different spot in life. Uh, President Reagan had come off a a commanding uh, election in in 1980. And uh, look, Joe Biden was elected because he said he was going to be the antidote to everything that was happening in the four years up to his election. He was going to restore normalcy. He was going to make things calmer. And instead, things have gotten only worse since then. And, you know, the the, the messaging around the age, I don't know what you do because the Biden campaign has spent twenty five million dollars in swing states arguing, uh, defending his record on the economy. And, and, and by and large, the most striking thing in that poll to me, Dana, was just by what wide margins former President Trump was beating uh, President Biden mm-hmm. on economic matters. And this was not these are not blue states. This was Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all states which Biden won in 2020. And the Democratic coalition is fraying young voters, black voters, Latino voters, all swinging to the President Trump in 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 in, in very, very uh, striking fashion. So it's a tough place to be in. And look, he's not going to get any younger. I-, I went back yesterday and pulled some of the filing deadlines. No, uh, New Hampshire and Nevada are actually already passed in terms of the ability to get on the ballot. Uh, so the mechanics of how you replace someone at the top of the ticket at this point in time, it gets very tricky. Um, Yeah, David Axelrod, who was Obama's senior advisor, he went out publicly after the poll came out and said Biden should do the honorable thing, say, I got you where you needed to be. And the best thing I can do is to bow out. I understand that people on the campaign are saying that's not happening. But you can imagine that David Axelrod is preparing for next November to be able to say, I told you so. Yeah. And I mean, look, he's always been one who David Axelrod's never been one who has had the most charitable things to say uh, about the current president. So I think that's probably what some of uh, Biden supporters would say if they were asked right now. I think one of the things look, Joe Biden, to to his credit, has to this point in time stuck remarkably firm to his he stood strong as it relates to support for Israel. But late Friday afternoon, that video from Rashida Tlaib essentially accusing Joe Biden of supporting genocide in Gaza mm-hmm. and warning that voters won't forget his actions at the polls. I mean, the Democratic Party is coming apart at the seams. And, and Colin, that poll, the New York Times poll, as I understand it, was taken before this past weekend where you started to see a lot of the fracturing amongst the Democrats on this issue of his support for Israel. And even there's reporting that on the campaign staff, people wanted to write a letter to the president of the United States telling him to back off his support for Israel. I hope that he doesn't do that. But I also feel like there are things that he could do that would make more sense of what he's doing today. This is Monday, November 6th. And let me just let everyone know it. Fine, the president spends the weekend in Delaware. Great. Love that. But today, instead of going back to the White House and demanding that the vandalism that took place at the White House over the weekend with the red uh, blood on their hand, paint on the White House property, instead of demanding that that be cleaned up, instead of going out there and saying, hey, oi, let me tell you something, you know, instead of showing some strength, instead of calling a cabinet meeting, 
and saying, I want everybody in their seats at 8 a.m. And we are going to talk about what all of us are doing to combat anti-Semitism. And if they want to throw Islamophobia in there, fine. Like, but do something. And instead, he is doing a speech today on Bidenomics in front of the Amtrak crowd. And I don't understand how they are going to say to everybody, well, the fundamentals of this race are very strong and expect anyone to believe that they've got a handle on what is about to hit them electorally. He had tens of thousands of protesters screaming obscenities at him, accusing him of murder, essentially, over the weekend at the gates of the White House, literally at the gates. And the the response so far has been so muted. And, you know, more than anything else, the questions about his age, he can't do anything about that. He just can't. You can't turn back the hands of time. However, this idea that he could show up and be stronger, be more forceful, and I think that would, by and large, at least address people's concerns that the world is off its kilter and the guy in charge right now is asleep at the switch and perhaps, worst of all, unable to, to right the ship. And that's those are the headwinds this White mm-hmm. House is sailing into. What do you hear, if anything, or are they being super quiet amongst Democratic governors that are sort of basically keeping the rumor alive that they are ready if Biden isn't going to be on the ticket. I'm talking about Governor Newsom of California, Governor Whitmer of Michigan, even Ro Khanna, the congressman from California, amongst others, Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania. Is that real or is that us reading into that? Well, Gavin Newsom is certainly doing nothing but stoking the the, the speculation around his candidacy uh, going overseas in this mysterious trip, making all those headlines for running over that little kid playing basketball. <laughs> and uh, look, certainly there's the, the Democratic bench is pretty shallow, frankly, uh, but there's a couple of names who could step up. But the calendar, if you look at the calendar, it's getting so late in, in terms of being able to gain ballot access. And the one thing I think that's overlooked by a lot of people is just how hard it is to get your name on a ballot. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of signatures. It requires a lot of dollars. It requires a lot of organization. It requires structure. And it's difficult to just start that engine overnight. So th- that's the challenge that any of these candidates are going to run to. But Republicans throughout the time of Joe Biden's presidency have always thought he wouldn't be on the ballot. And we've never really been able to say how that would come to be. Uh, but now it seems like with each passing day, with each passing poll, with each just bad metric piling up, it seems like that prophecy could be coming closer and closer to fruition. I made a prediction on the five months ago that if he was if he if Biden decided not to run, he would announce it. I think I said the Tuesday or Wednesday after Thanksgiving so that he could say I spent the week with my family. Anyway, we'll we'll see. You know, I've got a few weeks to still be right. I do want to mention one last thing before we take a break. And that is that in the New York Times poll, it also said that Any generic Republican, aside from Biden, including his vice president, Kamala Harris, would beat Trump. And that's why I wonder how seriously the DNC or Democrats, Democrats who who really just abhor the idea of Trump becoming president again, how seriously they are taking this situation. And is there anybody out there who can talk to Joe Biden to say, hey, we might need you to step aside? And I think Joe, I think even Barack Obama is is not the person that could tell him that. It's ironic. The entire Biden candidacy was born out of the idea that he was the only one who could stop Trump. And that's what the case he used to make people rally around him when he seemed like he might not be fit for the job four years ago or five years ago. And now here we are at this point in time, 
and the reverse. So he might be undone by the very same logic that he used to win the presidency the first time. And it's very, very interesting to watch. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of nervous Democrats in this town right now. All right. Before we wrap up this segment, I've got a candidate quotable. Which presidential candidate is responsible for the following statement? The best measure of the health of our country, it is the percentage of people who feel free to say what they actually think in public. Right now, we're doing poorly. We'll have that answer coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We are back with Perino on politics. All right, Colin Reed, help me prepare for the third debate. It's happening in Miami. These are still Republican hopefuls that they look at President Trump's numbers, which are enduring and solid, and he is so far ahead of the other candidates, the other Republican candidates, and yet they persevere. What is different between this debate and then the one that I participated in in California? Well, a couple things. One, people look at Trump's strength and, and where he's at in the polls, and there's no doubt he's ahead. But the, the, the thing that people sometimes miss is Trump is, by all, for all intents and purposes, the incumbent president. And an incumbent president should have 70, 80 percent of support uh, of voters uh, he, he or she shouldn't be dealing with any sort of uh, primary discussion. And Trump right now, he's closer to 50 or 60 percent, depending on on what poll you look at and where he's at in some of these early states. So that's number one. Number two, people shouldn't sleep on what can happen if this field consolidates and how quickly it can happen. I went back in time and looked at the third debate in 2015. There were 14 people in that debate. Uh, there was 10 on the main stage and four on the kitty table. This year, Eight years later, there's only five people as of right now on that stage, and that's a big difference. So the the field, the the herd has been thinned uh, by two thirds, and five people on the stage as opposed to seven people on the stage. As you know all too well, there's going to be two less people jostling for time. There's going to be less. There's going to be more running room. There's going to be more opportunities for these candidates to make their points and and have a moment, if you will, because these debates. Why they matter so much is it's so rare to have so many people watching at one time and the opportunity to really break out of that field. So look, if someone has a moment in the debate and the field starts to consolidate, all of a sudden, you know, the former president's looking at a one-on-one race uh, as opposed to a one-on-five race. And then I think those polls will start to start to tighten uh, fairly dramatically and potentially fairly quickly. Well, let me ask you about the fact that, you know, now we have Mike Pence has dropped out. Um, we have Burgum and Hutchison did not qualify. So as you said, there's there's three fewer people on the stage. Is there anything that a candidate can do in that debate this Wednesday that would break them out of the pack and put a dent in President Trump's lead? Anything they could do. Well, I can't think hard. of it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I don't think the goal there is to is to put the is to separate yourself from President Trump. It's to it's to advance to that stage by separating yourself from the rest of the pack. And one of the challenges I think the whole field will face is national security never really takes uh, front and center in the in the eyes of voters. And even in that New York Times poll, where Biden was really getting his clock clean was on economic issues, and that still is 
uh, by and large, the, the number one issue. So, but at the same time, foreign policy is in the news right now. There is this feeling of unease. Uh, there's a lot of news coverage over there. So it's natural for these candidates to want to drift into that. So what I think will be, what I think will be instructive is for which of these candidates to be able to project the sense of strength and to be able to present a sense of calmness uh, and the antidote to what's going on uh, with the, the current uh, president and potentially his predecessor, former President Trump, too, because Trump projected strength, but it wasn't a, a period of calmness. And these elections tend to they go back and forth. And, and that's that's where that pendulum uh, needs to swing. But, you know, I look back in history. Biden came in fourth in Iowa. Uh, he came in fifth in New Hampshire. He didn't even stay the night. He didn't even stay in the state of New Hampshire to watch the. Re- re- That's right. I remember in. that he was already out of the state when we were starting our coverage. That's right. And then the next day or shortly thereafter, he's the presumptive nominee. So who would have thought, right? So that's just the, to illustrate how quickly that when the field starts consolidating around a candidate, uh, things can change pretty quickly. And back then, the Democrats were afraid of uh, what a nominee Senator Sanders Sanders would look like. So it's possible there's some level of of similar movement on the right. Republican side. Let me let me mention too, uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, these two competitors in the GOP primary. So Nikki Haley has continued to just inch up in the polls. You know, again, Trump's lead is so far ahead. But if you're looking at the others, her she has gone up a little bit steadily. DeSantis has lost a little ground, held steady in some, but lost a little ground. He's put a lot in Iowa, a lot of resources in Iowa. He just got the endorsement of the very popular governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. And what the DeSantis people will say is that the reason they think that he should be the one that emerges to take on Trump, if this gets to a two-person race, is that when asked if DeSantis weren't in the race, would you vote for Trump or Haley? The people who want DeSantis to run and to be the nominee say that they would go for Trump over Haley. So that's why DeSantis is saying it makes sense for him to be the one to endure. What do the Haley people say to that? Well, look, Ambassador Haley's had a a, a good go of it lately uh, in terms of momentum. And you've seen in that, I mean, look back at that a Des Moines Register poll a week ago, long considered the gold standard of polling. She had a nice rise in Iowa, uh, and Governor DeSantis had, had had flatlined a little bit. And that was the poll that had President Trump at 43%. But if you combine DeSantis and Haley votes, it's, they were at 16%. So 43-32, all of a sudden, it's a little bit of a closer race. But the fact is, 43% in Iowa for President Trump, that means 57%. I'm not great at math, but mm-hmm. 100 minus mm-hmm. 43 means 57% wants somebody else. And that's where my point about President Trump being an incumbent president, that's how this these leads and these this, these polling numbers need to be reflected. But look, to your point about Iowa, we always talk about how we don't vote all at once. We don't vote in a national election. Mm-hmm. Iowa's going to go first, and then New Hampshire's going to go, and the time in between there is going to have a huge influence on how the, the, the race is plays out in New Hampshire. But I do believe that the train, the Trump train needs to be slowed down in the early states uh, in, in Iowa, for one of these can't for someone else to have a, a chance to, to 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 slow momentum, and then the other thing I would say is public polling in, in in October in the state of Iowa hasn't been terribly indicative of who wins the caucus. Uh, November 2011, Herman Cain was winning, uh, 23 percent. In November 2015, Ben Carson was winning at 28 percent, and what I think that indicates is 
these these early state voters are, are very sophisticated. They're going to hear from a lot of these candidates between now and the time they actually make their decision. They're going to see a lot of ads. They're going to get a lot of mailers. They're going to go to a lot of town hall meetings. And it's very possible they break late and they break fast. Mm. And someone who's 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 not at number one right now uh, is able to, to to pull off a victory. Well, and that's why we keep paying attention. All right. That wraps up this segment. Before we head to our next one, here's the answer to your candidate quotable. The best measure of the health of our country, it is the percentage of people who feel free to say what they actually think in public. Right now, we're doing poorly. That quote is yes from entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. We'll have more Perino on politics coming up. All right, welcome back to Perino on Politics. Colin, we're going to wrap up this episode with a look ahead to Election Day. And I don't mean Election Day 2024. I mean Election Day 2023. What are the big races that are happening tomorrow? Well, since I sit here in the D.C. media market, I have been and many others have been subject to a lot of advertising in the Virginia uh, legislative races tomorrow. And there's been a lot of uh, speculation as to what this means for the future of Governor Yunkin. He's he's really gone all in on on, on trying to flip control uh, of the state Senate. And he's look, he's doing so in a really blue state that uh, has gone blue over time and has gotten increasingly uh, more and more uh, urban as it reflects the, the demographics of D.C. and the people who live and, and work close to here. But look, this is this is what I think how the, this the outcome of tomorrow's race will be perceived. One, this will be the first time that a Republican candidate has, instead of just allowing the opposition to define his or her views on abortion, has really tried to flip the script. And Governor Yunkin has leaned into the messaging. He's laid out what he thinks the appropriate view is. And he's laid out the case why. And, you know, in 2020, do you have a description of like how how does he best describe it? I heard I had a friend yesterday say that they had left church and they were checking the Sunday show transcripts and that he felt that Yunkin had done the best of any Republican he had heard to date in trying to explain the Republican conservative position on abortion. Yeah, I think. Well, he he basically has said, like, we're going to set the, the, the restrictions at 15 weeks. They're currently at 27 weeks. Here's why we think that makes the most sense. And that allows him to do a couple of things. One, it doesn't allow his opponents to frame his view and and what he stands for. And two, it allows them to ask the question, which Republicans and conservatives and pro-lifers always want to ask, which is, yeah, but the other side is more extreme because they want abortion up until the point of birth. And, you know, in 2022, Republicans and pro-life movement got a huge win when the Supreme Court uh, ruled the way it did. But then after that, uh, the movement was caught a bit flat-footed. There wasn't this ability to defend or, or articulate what, what our view was. Certain states were well, doing certain things. Well, and also things. then in, in those in Kansas, for example, that's just one example of many where traditionally conservative places lost abortion referendums. And as I understand it, and you're, as you said, you're there in the D.C. media market the Democrats have just decided to go all in on abortion and not talk about the things Youngkin is the proactive message he's been talking about, which is the inflation, the economy, crime and especially education. education. Yeah. yeah, no, education, crime, the crime, the crime ads are are real. But unlike 2022, when a lot of candidates, Republican candidates made the tactical decision, let's just ignore the abortion issue. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about immigration. Uh, Governor Yunkin's gone out there and has, has has laid out his position on on that issue, and then has also made the case for others. So look, if Governor Yunkin has a big, or if Republicans have a big night t- next uh, t- tomorrow, you can expect a lot of uh, chatter and speculation about what that means for what that portends for Governor Yunkin's future. 
Virginia governors. Meaning in 2024 or 2028? Well, potentially both. Um, but most but likely 28. He, can, he can't run for re-election at this point. Yeah. So, you know, he won in 20, 2021. He'll be out of there in 2025. So, yeah, but you can expect there to be a lot of focus on this this guy who's managed in the post-Trump world or the post-Trump presidency to survive and win in a, in the tough blue state, govern effectively. He's got some of the best approval ratings in the country, and then to sweep his party to a, a victory in, a, in an off year, that would mm-hmm. be that would be something not a lot of other candidates across the country can can lay claim to. We're also watching an abortion referendum in Ohio, and the way that 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 the question is written for the voters, it's very confusing. And what I've seen is that the conservatives are basically saying they think that they might not win this one in Ohio. Yeah, and it's a red state. Ohio's a place that Trump won by eight points each time. I know the left has poured a lot of money into this issue. It's certainly more of a base motivator for them at this point now that the Supreme Court has ruled. So, yeah, people will view that what they will. Um, and I, the, sometimes these referendums that happen in the vacuum and the, with a confusing word choice are, are not always the best indicators of, mm-hmm. of, of what's going to happen. But and then I know Kentucky's also one that's on a lot of people's minds right now. Yeah. So let's talk about Kentucky for a moment. Four years ago, Andy Bashir is a Democrat. He pulls it off. He wins there. He's fairly popular. And it looked like Daniel Cameron, who is running against him, he's, a, he's the attorney general. For a while, it looked like Bashir was definitely going to win. And now, as I've checked in with a couple of people today who know the state well, they think it is a tie, neck and neck. And so we will see what happens. And that one's very close. Is that how you see it? It is. Andy Bashir's got the family name. He's also an endangered species right now. He's a Democratic uh, governor in the South. Remember earlier this month, or I guess in October, the Re- Republicans flipped the Louisiana State House red after eight years of Democrat control. Bashir's a tough out. He's got a little bit of that Joe Manchin ability to separate himself from his national party. But I know the Republican Daniel Cameron is uh, is a rising star in the party. He's closing hard. He's closing fast. The last poll you referenced showed that they were tied at 47 percent each. And that is one where the Republicans are trying to nationalize the election and make it a referendum on President Biden just because of how uh, deeply unpopular he is in the state. The last one to mention is Mississippi. And I think people might be surprised. Why are we talking about the governorship of Mississippi, the gubernatorial race? Could that actually be close with a Republican and a Democrat? Well, yeah, it it, it could be because in Mississippi, you have to get to 50 percent or you have to go to a runoff. So what could happen there? Yeah, I, I checked the other day and it's, it's the polls were surprisingly close in a place like Mississippi. It is possible that neither of them get to 50 percent which means that the top two candidates go through to a runoff uh, later in the month, November 28th, I believe. Uh, I also would note the Democratic challenger is a second cousin of Elvis Presley, so <laughs> they might be they might be getting some uh, some helpful tailwinds from that. That is pretty that's pretty interesting. I mean, if you use 23andMe, you could probably figure out a way to say you are related to somebody famous. So if you're thinking if you're out there thinking of running for office, you might check that one out. Maybe, yeah, that's true. Is there anything you're paying attention to right now that I should be paying attention to? I know you look at energy issues and the cost of energy and what, how that might be affecting, especially somebody like a Joe Biden right now. 
Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden, the thing is that the, the promise of Joe Biden was he was going to govern as this moderate guy who was going to be able to stave off the, the, the more restless and extreme wings of his party. But we've long ago learned that who Joe Biden is and how he governs are two totally different things. You've certainly seen that in energy, and it's hurt our economy and our national security immeasurably as a result. Immigration, same deal. And the one thing I'm watching right now is two things. One, will Joe Biden be able to hold off? Uh, the restless wing of his party. And I thought those comments from Barack Obama over the weekend were uh, really, really unhelpful, but it indicates where the party's going. And uh, two, will Biden, the Democrats, they will they get held to account for the same extreme views that, that Republicans always do? I mean, if you're a Republican senator or, or congressman, and the last, especially during the Trump era, you'd walk around the Capitol and you, you'd get 18 microphones put in your face asking you to react to the latest tweet from the former president, uh, now you've got Rashida Tlaib out there uh, essentially accusing President Biden of committing genocide. And, you know, it, it Biden will say the right thing and the press will just let them move on. But there are some really, really extreme views, really anti-Semitic views coursing through some of the, the left wing of the Democratic Party. And it's one that we should all hope that the some of the people, the quote unquote centrists and, and, and moderates are able to stand up to and denounce. Colin, great to have you back on the podcast. Before I let you go, I've got a pop quiz. You get to choose from three possible categories, presidential potpourri, campaign slogans, or Dana Reed's sports. Mm, we'll do potpourri. Okay. This U.S. president is featured on the rare $2 bill. Is it Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, or James Monroe? I think it's Thomas Jefferson. You're right. Yay. We finally get somebody who got the trivia right. Um, my grandparents used to send me a $2 bill for my birthday every year. Um, but then I was told I couldn't spend them because they were rare and special. They're so rare. Right. So then, like, why did they? I don't know. So that's a mystery. I need to go back in the family lore and figure that out. Uh, Colin Reed, thank you for being on Perino on Politics. See you soon. Thank you, Dana. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.